This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we're discussing the Sea Islands Hurricane of 1893, one of the deadliest hurricanes in United States history. The Sea Islands Hurricane started as a tropical storm that formed over the Atlantic Ocean on August 15, 1893. By August 19, it had become a hurricane, meaning its maximum sustained winds had reached at least 75 miles per hour. On August 22, the storm was northeast of the Lesser Antilles, and it reached Category 3 status on the Saffir-Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale defined as a maximum sustained winds of 111 to 129 miles per hour. After leaving the Bahamas, the storm moved north along the southern coast of the United States, finally making landfall near Savannah, Georgia, on August 27th. At landfall, the storm was at least a Category 3, but may have intensified to a Category 4 or 5. The storm surge, the temporary rise in the water level, was at least 16 feet and may have been up to 30 feet in some places along the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. Such a large storm surge can knock over people and property, and it creates extreme flooding conditions. During the night of August 27th into August 28th, the hurricane battered the coast, especially the Sea Islands, a chain of tidal and barrier islands along the coast that had been a haven for African Americans since the Civil War. The 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Bill had given some black Southerners the opportunity to buy forfeited land on the Sea Islands at $1.25 per acre. Nearly 2,000 families took advantage of this and owned land on the Sea Islands, where they built farms and schools. It was these communities most threatened by the hurricane. Some of the Sea Islands were entirely submerged by the storm that night, as the high tide and full moon combined with the hurricane in deadly force. Several islands near Beaufort, including Kiawa Island and Sullivan's Island, were under 4 to 20 feet of water. The hurricane pounded the sea islands for hours, from Sunday afternoon through Monday morning, and many residents had little hope of making it to safety, especially in the darkness of night. 
Families were forced to shelter at home, not knowing if their houses could withstand the storm. Those who opted to leave would run to shelter on the highest ground they could, crowding into houses along with dozens of their neighbors. Some of those who couldn't make it to a neighbor's house climbed up into oak trees, sometimes tying themselves to the branches to keep from being swept away. Others found refuge in boats, trying to ride out the storm in small crafts. Some especially brave boaters used their ships to save as many people as they could find, bringing them to safety before heading out again. Many did not survive the night. Counting the dead was an immense challenge, but likely around 2,000 people died during that single night, and many more perished in the coming days and weeks from injury, illness, or starvation caused by the hurricane. The overwhelming majority of those who died from the storm were African American. On Monday, August 28th, those who did survive in Beaufort County witnessed the massive destruction caused by the storm. Every structure in the area was damaged, if not completely destroyed. In Charleston, city employees got to work clearing away the damage, removing over 7,500 loads of debris. They were aided by 10 chain gangs of convict laborers, people who had been convicted of misdemeanors. A reminder that the Emancipation Proclamation hadn't freed everyone. Throughout the Sea Islands, it wasn't just debris that needed to be cleared, but bodies as well. As survivors continued to find the remains of their neighbors and loved ones while they cleaned up from the storm. Both drinking water and crops were contaminated by salt from the storm surge, and the threat of starvation and illness was omnipresent. Finally, on October 1st, over a month after the hurricane hit, the American Red Cross, led by Clara Barton, arrived to assist with the recovery. The Red Cross set up a warehouse in Beaufort and organized the relief efforts. Committee men from across the Sea Islands came to collect rations weekly to redistribute in their local communities. The rations were meager, and the Red Cross also provided boats and nets to families who could fish, crop seeds to plant, and tools to help families prepare their land for farming. Local black women collaborated with the Red Cross, forming sewing circles to make useful items out of the donated clothing. In the end, the Red Cross stayed for ten months, hoping the recovery was far enough along that the people of the Sea Islands would be able to support themselves going forward. The relief efforts had been supported by a shoestring budget of donations. When both the South Carolina State Legislature and the U.S. Congress 
declined appeals for help. Joining me now to help us understand more about this 1893 hurricane is Dr. Caroline Grego, Assistant Professor of History at Queen's University of Charlotte and author of Hurricane Jim Crow, How the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893 Shaped the Low Country South, which was the source for much of this introduction. But first, I'll leave you with a first-hand account of the hurricane from a diary written by Margaret Weary, as quoted in a 2006 article in Economic History. Quote, I was so busy that evening cooking supper, I never minded the wind and rain, nor the great roaring of waves, till I looked out through the shutter and saw the sea all around the house. Then we were frightened as we saw the waves rushing up to the door. Ma seized my little sister Grace, wrapped her in a blanket, and ran to a neighbor's house on the hill. Brother and I jumped out into the water and ran as fast as we could, but I fell down into the water. My brother picked me up, and we pressed on through the waves till we reached the house where Ma was. The water had come up all around that house, too, and so we had to run to another up on higher land, and there stayed all night. Next morning, we went home but there was no house there, nor anything left. All had been washed away into the marsh, and the sedge and the seaweed were piled up all around, higher than my head. We saw dead cats and dogs, dead horses and hogs all along the shore, and some dead men and women and children. We saw one dead woman holding on to a timber of her house, by her teeth. Unquote. Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. So I am very interested in learning more about this 1893 hurricane. I will admit, I live in Chicago. My primary point of reference for 1893 is the World's Fair. So it's good to learn what else was happening in the country then. But before we jump into that, could you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this topic? And this, I think, came out of your dissertation. And so how you decided to, to write about this event. So I grew up in South Carolina. And though I grew up in the capital of Columbia, I had family on the coast. And of course, living and growing up in South Carolina, you're familiar with the approach of hurricane season and the anticipation of it. And while South Carolina itself does not necessarily take direct hits from hurricanes as frequently as you might think, it is something that sort of looms over the experience of, of living there. It did take me a while to come back to South Carolina history. When I started my PhD at CU Boulder, I was lucky to have started digging back into it at that point and to encounter Peter H. Wood at Boulder too, who of course uh, is a renowned historian of colonial South Carolina and who was delighted to have a South Carolinian to talk history with there. And so Peter and I talked a lot about, about South Carolina history. And we talked one day, started talking about hurricanes. And this one came up as this incredibly deadly and impactful event, but one that perhaps had been underwritten about 
especially given the sort of level of its impact, the fact that it is the deadliest hurricane in South Carolina history. And this got me thinking about it. The early 1890s in South Carolina, especially in the low country, this coastal region of South Carolina, was a very important time for a few reasons, in part because, of course, the rest of the state had had its African-American-oriented civil rights overthrown with the end of Reconstruction in 1876. But coastal South Carolina was slightly different. It had very high rates of African-American land ownership. African-Americans in the low country still voted uh, in elections. But, of course, in the early 1890s, things are starting to shift. This is in part because of the election in 1890 of a rabidly racist governor known as Benjamin Ryan Tillman. And because I was also aware that in 1895, South Carolina passes what's known as its Jim Crow Constitution, the one that essentially overturns all of the reforms that Reconstruction had introduced into South Carolina and also ensures the passage of discriminatory voting laws and uh, segregation laws and so forth in the state. And it seems like a very provocative time then to have this massive hurricane that kills thousands of African-Americans in the very region that was sort of the last bulwark against this white supremacist wave that had overtaken the rest of the state. And this got me curious for, for a few reasons. In part because, of course, the low country today is a very fraught region. It's one where you have a great deal of privatization of the sea islands. It's one where, of course, there's a great deal of whitewashing of the region's history of slavery. And it's one that is also being threatened by the climate crisis. You know, Charleston deals with significant flooding events far more frequently than it used to. And so one of the questions then, too, is how did it get that way? And a hurricane, a massively deadly one, striking at this time and bringing in these economic, social, and political changes, or at least coinciding with them, seemed very interesting to me uh, and set up this question of, well, is there a connection between this hurricane in 1893 and the low country that I grew up seeing and visiting and seeing family at and so forth? And that got me down the path of wanting to investigate this more. Yeah. And so you're talking about how huge, how impactful this is. And to set this up for people, this is around the scale of like Katrina that people might remember, right? So that's about the size we're looking at. That's almost exactly the size, honestly. Katrina and this hurricane are tied for fourth deadliest hurricane in US history, actually. Now, of course, getting accurate death counts with all hurricanes is very difficult. And often it's very hard to get a completely accurate reading. And that's definitely true with this hurricane. Estimates sort of range from about 1,500 to as many as 5,000. 5,000, though, as a high count would incorporate deaths that occurred after the hurricane from sickness, starvation, sort of longstanding injuries and so forth, too. But in any case, yes, that's, that's absolutely sort of the scale of the storm as well. And so to sort of help people understand what what a hurricane striking, we all sort of have images in our minds probably of more recent hurricanes, but then, so there's not like an early warning system in the same way that there is today. These are people living on the edge of poverty in some cases in, as you mentioned, the low-lying region. So it's mm -hmm. it's hard to, and they're on islands, so it's hard to escape, even if you knew you had to escape. Absolutely. So, Talk about that that one night, that that terrible, terrible event itself, and, and what that was like for people. Sure. 
So yes, there there is no early warning system. What the U.S. had in 1893, they did have a weather bureau and they did have agents stationed at specific weather stations around the country. And in South Carolina, of course, they have one in Charleston and the man staffing it is named Louis Jesenovsky. And Jesenovsky was an avid weather watcher. But at the time, of course, there's not much for determining the arrival of a hurricane beyond shifts in barometric pressure keeping a close eye on the horizon and trying to get reports in from, say, the Caribbean to hear if perhaps there were storm warnings uh, in other islands further south that then might potentially lead to one hitting South Carolina as well. So that's what's changed. You have the telegraph, but otherwise you have these fairly sort of crude elements of weather watching that have existed for quite a long time. Now, Jesenowski, of course, does his best right? Uh, he he keeps a very close eye on the horizon. He starts to note, for example, that there's this haze sort of cast over the ocean. This is in part because there were actually other hurricanes deep in the Atlantic <laughs> at the same time. But this let him know that there was, at the very least, sort of bad weather brewing, and he needed to be very watchful of the horizon itself. Jasonowski does also get some early reports from ship captains who are straggling into ports in the Caribbean, warning of a, a hurricane that seemed very dangerous off the coast. But of course, he doesn't have radar. He doesn't know where it's going to turn. He doesn't know where this is going to go. And in fact, his bosses don't think that the hurricane he's been getting reports of are going to lead to anything significant. But Jasonowski disagrees. He knows that there's a low pressure front that he feels sure will help turn the hurricane towards South Carolina. And so he does raise warning flags, but this is only within Peninsular Charleston, just in the downtown immediate area. This kind of warning doesn't exist anywhere else on the coast of South Carolina, right? It isn't as though rural African-Americans living on, say, St. Helena Island or Defusky receive any warning whatsoever. The only warning that your everyday resident of the coast gets is the fact that on the Saturday before the hurricane strikes, it's starting to be a little stormy and the winds rise in this specific way and start to, you know, they don't stay constant, right? They start coming in from different directions. So people would have noticed this. And by the next day, the Sunday, people are still going to church that morning. They're not really read, letting this bad weather that's starting to creep in disrupt their daily routine. But by the afternoon, it's undeniable. Uh, and people would have known and did know there was undoubtedly a storm, a dangerous storm starting to approach. But yes, this this preparation is is very difficult. Your best bet was knowing where the most solid house in the neighborhood was and hoping they might let you in was knowing where the highest ground to you would be located if you were on one of these low-lying sea islands. And once again, hoping that you could make it to that high ground before a storm surge overtook the islands themselves. Now, of course, there are ways of sort of discerning hurricanes that are less sort of prosaic than this too, uh, that come from longtime African-American observations and experiences on the coast. One comes from the Mosquito Fleet of Charleston. The Mosquito Fleet were African-American fishermen who went out into Charleston Harbor and beyond every day to catch fish and bring it back in, so-called because they often had tan and beige sails. They looked like little mosquitoes hovering over the water. And one of the ways that they knew bad weather was coming was if fish escaped down into the depths, 
And this was a sign that they were trying to sort of escape turbulence on the surface. There are other, you know, there's a, a story I recount there about an African-American rice worker who said that he saw the moon on all four points of the compass and explained to the white landowner he worked for that he was able to see those signs because he was pure of heart and that the white landowner was not because he did not have that same purity in his heart, which I always took as sort of a commentary on the exploitative system of labor that still existed in South Carolina at the time. So these are some of the ways that they know the hurricane is coming, but that doesn't give you much forewarning. It isn't as though there were hurricane shelters they could go to, and it isn't as though evacuation was something that was possible either. You had to simply know what your immediate environments were and try to use that to your advantage. And what are the the sources that you were able to use to talk about sort of what that night itself was like? So the particular chapter we're talking about is chapter two in the book. And this was the hardest chapter to write. I probably have written about eight different versions or more of this chapter. <laughs> it, it has bedeviled me probably since 2016 when I first began to try to draft it. And part of it is because I'm not lacking for sources in writing this chapter. There's actually quite thorough documentation of this particular hurricane within South Carolina archives, which is mostly where I looked. Um, though UNC Chapel Hill, I believe, also had some firsthand accounts that I used. So there, there are all kinds of sources. I believe I sort of open with uh, diary excerpts from well-to-do white women. You have a number, of course, of newspaper accounts that did collect sort of firsthand accounts from both African-Americans and white South Carolinians talking about their experience of living through the hurricane. You have Louis Jesenowski's records as well. And you have people who recognized the importance of this hurricane and wrote accounts of it afterwards that were then either published or included in their sort of personal papers that happened to be preserved in various archives around South Carolina. So yes, I again, I was spoiled for sources. And honestly, that's more difficult in some, or it brings new challenges in a certain way, not more difficult, but different difficult, right? Because you have to figure out how to sort through all those voices how do you know what to prioritize? How do you figure out what to include? And how do you put this together into something that's even remotely cohesive? So so yes, again, I'm, I was blessed with a wide variety, but that was also a great challenge too. Yeah. Well, what you ended up with is not just cohesive, but compelling. It, it really like felt like I was there, you know, like you could imagine the, the movie version of it. So really worked. So there's this devastation. And like all hurricanes, we're very familiar with this, even in the current day, there's this sort of political thing that takes over about how do you respond to a hurricane and who gets the response and who who gets the, the help and in what ways I think anyone who saw what happened after Katrina or Maria, you know, is, mm -hmm. is well aware that that this still happens. But of course, it happened devastatingly in South Carolina. So can you talk a little bit about that that political picture? You mentioned Governor Tillman. He's really important in this piece of it. So what, what happens? So one thing to keep in mind is that disaster relief in 1893 looked quite different than it does today. So today, of course, there's an entire federal, federal bureaucracy dedicated to handling major disasters of this sort. Now, that isn't to say they always do it, of course, well. We all know this. Uh, but there was at least a centralized process. In 1893, there was not. Instead, it was often left to the states 
to deal with disaster relief. And sometimes politicians from that state could apply to Congress for emergency monies if they could prove that, for example, there was a public health crisis that required federal attention. But this was, of course, piecemeal, right? And you might not get it. And it was not an automatic process that was triggered. Politicians had to seek this out. And of course, that depended on all sorts of other factors. Whether these politicians could be bothered to care about the population that was struck, um, whether other politicians around the country could be bothered to care as well, it was not something that could be relied on. So in South Carolina, after this hurricane hits, there are a few scales at which you do see disaster response. Part of this, yes, comes from Governor Tillman. And Tillman, actually, and there is a World's Fair connection here. He was coming back from the Chicago World's Fair because of this hurricane. (laughs) So he had just been there. He returned and needed to figure out what to do. So Tillman, in addition to being generally rapidly racist and therefore very hostile towards the Black majority low country, was also very hostile towards white, the white elite of the low country too. He was not from that region. Uh, He thought of them as sort of stuck up and snobbish and he wanted very little to do with them. So Tillman is not inclined in any way to provide or lobby for much assistance for this, but it's a significant enough tragedy that he feels obligated to at least make some kind of an effort. So he essentially ends up punting it to local relief committees that form uh, primarily in Charleston, known as the Charleston Relief Committee, and one in Beaufort, which is called the Sea Island Relief Committee. And there are a bunch of other small committees around the state that usually end up as sort of fundraising arms that funnel money to those two committees. The Charleston Committee, though, and the Sea Island Relief Committee are two very different entities. The Charleston Relief Committee is primarily staffed by the white elite of the city, businessmen and merchants, descendants of slave-owning families, and and so forth, Confederate veterans, all sort of staff the ranks of the Charleston Relief Committee, whereas the Sea Island Relief Committee in Beaufort is integrated and uh, comprised of sort of progressive whites and local African-American leaders, including the famed Civil War veteran Robert Smalls, uh, who might be a name familiar to folks uh, as a former slave who famously piloted a boat with his family past Confederate forts during the Civil War itself. And he was a politician who then lived in Beaufort uh, and was very important there for decades afterwards. So the Beaufort Relief Committee, the Seattle Relief Committee, was very sympathetic towards African-Americans and very interested in trying to develop an equitable system of distribution of rations, clothing, donations, money, and so forth. The Charleston Relief Committee less so, more interested in downplaying stories of Black suffering and emphasizing the sort of rosy narrative of progress that Charleston would easily rise above this devastation as it had many other past disasters, both hurricanes, the massive earthquake in 1886, but also more human ones, uh, such as the Civil War. That kind of rhetoric is absolutely folded into how white Charlestonians understood this hurricane. Tillman ends up favoring the Charleston Relief Committee. He forces the Sea Island Relief Committee to be subservient to them, to merge their money and so forth. So you see a lot of these sort of internecine fights between these these local committees that, that happen that are absolutely sort of cleaved along these lines of race and class and the politics of the day. So that's, that's the initial story here is this state level and local level uh, relief that ends up becoming very heavily politicized and absolutely sort of refracted through the fact that Beaufort is still this 
town where African-Americans and whites do have a degree of political equity versus Charleston, where this wealthy white elite, both of these sort of new trades and these older ones have taken over. And then finally, a month, over a month later, I think, the Red Cross shows up. And that is just a fascinating. I, I, of course, knew who Clara Barton was, mm-hmm. but seeing sort of the the very nuanced portrait of her that you get here is just fascinating. Can you talk about, first of all, why it took so long for the Red Cross to mm-hmm. get there, but then what it is that both for good and maybe not so good, they're able to do? Sure. So the American Red Cross was founded in 1881 by Clara Barton, the famed Civil War nurse and humanitarian And they had dealt with some significant disasters, such as the Johnstown flood and so forth. But this was absolutely the largest calamity that Barton and the American Red Cross had been sort of called upon to deal with. Uh, And yes, it takes about a month to six weeks before the Red Cross arrives into town. Uh, And this is for a couple of reasons. This is in part because Tillman wanted to keep her at arm's length. He was deeply uncertain about allowing Barton into the state, in part because Barton is a white northerner. She's known to have been, you know, had abolitionist views during the Civil War. Um, He's very dubious about letting in these outside agitators, so to speak. So that's that's partially why. And Barton was also deeply uncertain that she and her organization could handle this level of devastation. So this ends up becoming partially why it takes a while. But yes, Barton and the Red Cross arrive. They set up headquarters in Beaufort. And then they try to entangle this massive mess. There were tens of thousands of people who were hungry, who were thirsty, who were dealing with serious illnesses, waterborne illnesses, malaria, so forth. And there was also there were a lot of donations to deal with too, and they needed to figure out a good system for for how to do this. Now, yeah, the other thing about this is too, is that the Red Cross's presence there and Barton's too is very fraught because while Barton was what you would call sort of a white progressive for the time, everything the Red Cross did there was laced with this paternalism towards African-Americans in the region. And this paternalism in this case meant that They believed that African-Americans on the coast had to be delivered lessons in self-sufficiency alongside the rations that they would be given to. So, for example, whereas the Red Cross had never made disaster sufferers work in exchange for rations before, she develops a system of work and labor for African-Americans in the low country in order to receive rations. So that's one significant difference that you see here that sort of emphasizes uh, this paternalism. On on the other hand, of course, it's a recovery effort that was orchestrated in lots of ways by local African-Americans themselves. So while Barton is overseeing this and runs this in sort of a top-down way, uh, there were nonetheless local African-Americans who empowered themselves to take the lead on some important parts of this recovery effort. And as a couple examples sort of show what I mean, for example, um, Black women organized and ran sewing circles across the Sea Islands, uh, where they would take in donated fabric and clothes that the Red Cross distributed to them, and then organized their sort of refurbishment and distribution themselves. You also see this in some of the agricultural labor work crews that are formed too. So many African-Americans living in the Low Country did own their own land. 
often in five to 20 acre plots, sometimes more. Those few who did not usually lived on rice plantations and worked essentially as sharecroppers or tenant farmers. But just because African-Americans in low country owned land at such high rates did not necessarily mean that they always had the time or resources to tend to that land properly. Very frequently, they relied on day wages and sort of daily labor for white farmers living nearby. And this meant that they often had to neglect things like clearing out drainage ditches on their own properties and so forth. But African-Americans in the wake of the hurricane are able to take the rations from the Red Cross to stave off the need that they had for that daily wage to help keep their families fed and instead could focus on refurbishing their own land and, and making it more productive, planting their own crops without having to worry about working for whites. They also organized and ran their own work crews, both in refurbishing these private lands, which they sort of would do as a community, um, and in rebuilding homes and gardens and fences and so forth, too. So African-Americans found ways to take control of this process, despite the sort of strings attached that Barton put on them, too. So, yes, it, it ends up being this, this fascinating and complicated relief effort where Barton tries to enforce these sort of limits around it, tries to sort of infuse it um, with these paternalist notions about how Americans still had to be taught how to, to farm properly. But they use the effort instead to stave off white control of their labor in a way that was ordinarily quite difficult. So it ends up being this complex interplay that's really fascinating to see unfold, especially because this defies sort of our normative narratives of the 1890s, right? The 1890s are one of the worst decades in Southern history. They're incredibly violent, incredibly difficult. And it's when you really see the rise of Jim Crow. And certainly that's true enough in South Carolina. But this is also a moment where you see how communities can organize to push back against that. And, and do this quite effectively as long as they had some element of support. So that's another reason why this, this becomes such an interesting case study. Yeah. And, and of course, the Red Cross couldn't stay forever. And so how do we get from there, from this moment where they're using the support to try to build their communities, recover from the hurricane, mm -hmm. to this really terrible moment in 1895 with the new yeah. constitution? Yeah, so this is this sort of unfortunate part, right? There are all these ebbs and flows um, in this history. And here this happens for a few reasons. This happens in part because white landowners, of course, organize and orchestrate a concentrated backlash to the Red Cross through local letter writing campaigns, through trying to dislodge the Red Cross from the region. And, and so forth. But they also take a look at what happened in the low country and realize that if they're ever going to regain full control, they need to remove this political debate from these local arenas where African-Americans could still stave off and, and sort of dig in and create these moments of success. They needed to remove it to the state level where African-Americans could not participate and, and find ways to push back against this. So that's sort of one of the lessons that white South Carolinians learned. The other one was that they needed to make sure that these kinds of white Northern interlocutors did not come back into the state um, because African-Americans were very skilled at drawing upon those connections to help, yes, rebuild their communities in the wake of a storm of this sort. 
So yes, the Red Cross leaves in basically July of 1894. They've been there for long enough. They've seen folks through the planting season and even through, you know, of course, the midsummer harvest and they have to go. They've been there for long enough. So they withdraw from the state. Barton defends their effort to the last and in fact receives a great deal of praise um, for it as well, both from African-Americans who write letters of thanks and from some white South Carolinians, despite the abuse she got from other quarters. So they leave and it seems as though maybe this has been some sort of success, but things start to change. In part, unfortunately, there were some pretty bad rainy seasons that unmade some of the planting progress that African-Americans had made over the course of that particular season. And you also as well see Tillman digging in. Tillman was absolutely determined to force through a new constitution. And he starts striking that drum as soon as he can once Barton departs. And Barton even recognizes this uh, as this political danger. One of the last things that she says before she leaves is essentially to beg white South Carolinians not to bring down the hammer and still insist on passing this, this constitution. But Tillman does. Again, he is going to force this through. This was essentially a campaign promise. And so he ends up being able to call a constitutional convention Now, there were African-American delegates to this constitution. And in fact, all of the delegates elected from Beaufort County were African-American and Robert Smalls was among them. He had also been at the 1868 Reconstruction Constitutional Convention that had been called too. And there's there's one other African-American representative from another part of the state who, who are there as well. And so even though I think they recognize that there's really nothing they can do at this point to stop the process, They nonetheless take this stand and use the convention as an opportunity to articulate their own vision for Black citizenship, to craft a narrative of South Carolina history that honors African-Americans and that speaks truth to what the history of slavery meant and how it built the state, um, despite the exploitation and abuses of African-Americans over the course of centuries in the state too. So they, they use this convention to try to push back um, and give these really incredible speeches that detail this history and this vision and, and so forth. But again, they're outnumbered completely. And so the constitution passes very easily and the Beaufort delegates walk out and refuse to sign their names to it. And in fact, if you go to the South Carolina Department of Archives and History and look at the copy of the Constitution that they have on the wall, you can see where the Beaufort delegates' names were supposed to have been signed, and you can see the blank spots there. So yes, um, unfortunately, you see this quick shift from this moment of sort of hope and possibility that's quite rare in this era to this moment where Tillman has ensured the rise of of Jim Crow in the state. And the provisions for voting within this constitution end up finally killing the last remaining abundance of Black voting that occurred in the low country there too. So yeah, it's, it's really a tragic story. And I'll admit, I never found the sort of smoking gun where Tillman says directly, Yes, okay. The hurricane has diminished the numbers of Black residents of the Low Country. So now I can push this through. But what you can find are little glimmers that suggest that this was on their minds. 
Uh, Joseph Elkington, who was a Quaker minister, comes down and visits the islands in early 1894 and meets with a number of the white elite of the state, including Tillman. He also meets with the mayor of Charleston, and he writes in his own reflections on it that his impression was that, well, if this killed a few thousand African-Americans, so much the better, both for reducing the state's Black majority and for killing Black voters. So, you know, you cannot make that sort of direct line um, from things that Tillman said, but there are nonetheless these sort of little clues amidst it that do suggest a connection between the hurricane and this clampdown on Black political rights in the state. So I, I wanted to ask, too, you, your BA and MA are in geography, and so I, I wanted to get a sense from you about how that informed your ability to do this kind of project, like what what that sort of path looks like. And and I'm thinking if there are people out there thinking, maybe I want to do history someday, you know, like what, what that kind of thing can look like. Sure. Um, so yes, uh, BA and MA both in geography. And for me, this meant that I always really cared about place and environment. And this partially comes from living in South Carolina, where, of course, you cannot escape history and you feel the weight of place wherever you go if you're if you're paying attention. And so it was for those reasons that I became interested in thinking deeply about what place meant and how environmental factors were a part of human history. And in my MA, I trended more towards historical geography. And historical geography and environmental history have a great a great deal in common. Now, of course, historical geography can be more spatially minded, and environmental history is, of course, very environmentally minded. But I think that you can see that attention, sort of the detail of place and environment throughout throughout the book, or at least I hope I hope one can. And so that's something that has absolutely never left me, is, is wanting to get a sense of how granular details of place and space impact people's experiences of major weather events like this hurricane, and also impact their lived day-to-day lives. And yeah, I, I really hope that that does sort of show up in the book too. Yeah. I also have been hearing this term recently, uh, microhistory, that, mm-hmm. you know, I I think there's been a lot of discussion of what what is microhistory, and I realized myself that I, I wasn't entirely sure. And so as I was mm-hmm. I was reading your book, I was thinking, well, this is a, looking at a single event and its impact. And so I guess would you would you call this microhistory? You know, what do you find that terminology useful? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and it's one I wrestle with myself too, because I'll admit, I mean, you know, in a certain way, this book, and I joke about this all the time, is a little parochial, right? It's very intensely focused on this sort of narrow strip of coast. And and in that sense, and and, and not only that, but as you say, it's a deep dive into the cascading effects of a singular event that, of course, gets woven into this this broader history. And so, yeah, I I don't think that I would shy away from calling it a microhistory or understanding that engaging in this kind of deep dive into, into an event and into a place, I think is very, very useful. I think both for getting a clear sense of this place in this particular time and of making sure that one understands the environment in which this occurred too, because it's so important to this book to understand what the environment of the low country was like and how that impacts experiences of labor, class, race, um, and environmental change over time too. 
So yeah, I, I think that you could call this a microhistory. And I think that that's a really important part of the analysis too. I don't think that you get the same story if you zoom out to look at this at a different scale. And I think the story that I tell in this is important because it's so intensely focused and stays at this small scale as well. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I for whatever I do or don't understand about what microhistory is, <laughs> I, I think it's something I like. <laughs> Uh-huh. I mean, it lends itself well to more narrative formats. Mm-hmm. It also helps put some guardrails on which sources you will and won't look at. So it helps make sure that that you know you you know where to stay focused when it comes to you know, when it comes time to do your archival research. So yes, it definitely helps in all those those regards, I would say. Well, if people would like to read this book, how can they get it? Sure. So, of course, I have to push people towards the UNC University of North Carolina Press website. They currently have a 40% off and free shipping sale right now that I, of course, encourage people to take advantage of because that means it'll only be $18, which is a very reasonable price for the paperback. So, yes, please go over to the UNC Press website um, and check it out there. If you just type in Hurricane Jim Crow, it will show right up. Excellent. And everybody listening to this knows that I love UNC Press. So, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? So as I said at the, the beginning of the podcast, I sort of pointed towards how my interest in the present of the Low Country absolutely informed how I wrote about its past and sort of work our way from 1893 to the present it is, of course, a big a big job. And this book does not completely do that, right? The book looks at essentially from the 1880s or so until sort of the 1920s, just up until about 1930, and then sort of jumps in time some in the conclusion. But the reason that I do that is in part because these sort of spiraling economic, political, and social changes that lead to quite a depressed place, economically speaking, by the mid-20th century uh, is what helps prepare the region for the arrival of corporate developers and sort of the tourism industry by the mid-20th too. And so you you start to see this shift to the tourism-dominated low country that people know today when they go visit places like Hilton Head or Charleston. Really, again, that ground is sort of prepared by this hurricane um, and by the effects that it that it has. Well, and of course that South Carolina politicians and landowners and elite allow it to have and encourage it to have, right? You know, no disaster is, is fully natural as they say, right? Um, instead they have and are shaped by human forces. Uh, and absolutely that's the case here. Uh, now, of course, I'm not trying to say that the reason why uh, the low country is the way it is today is solely because of this hurricane. That's simply not true. And I don't think my book reflects such a simplistic narrative there. But it is important to think about the interplay of this history, um, of this environmental history of the low country with the, the current present that we have, which is, of course, a place where African-Americans have been dealing with serious dispossession from their lands for generations at this point, where this history of the region is has largely been whitewashed, though, of course, there's some really encouraging efforts that are undoing that. For example, with the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park in Beaufort County, which is doing amazing work. There is, of course, uh, the International Museum for African American History getting founded in Charleston, which should open sometime too. And, of course, the efforts 
of Gullah Geechee chefs, artists, activists, and so forth as well, who are trying to sort of reclaim this history and also create a better present and future for African-Americans who are still in South Carolina too. So all of this, you know, is encouraging, but the low country is still such a troubled place because it's still so dominated by a moneyed elite. Um, and of course, because it is seeing the impacts of the climate crisis through these sorts of rising seas too. And that makes a rather depressing place to end a book, <laughs> quite frankly, right? It's, it's not a happy tale, but then nothing in the low country ever really has been, right? And I think that sort of what I hope for, though, is continuing complexity, at least, and the continuation of these fights to make the low country a better place, especially for these traditionally sort of marginalized populations um, within it. And that, that I think, is something that I hope also comes clear in this book, is that we do have precedents for these fights and for what this resistance can look like. And that these are legacies still being carried out today. Yeah. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for speaking with me. This was a really terrific book, and I hope people will go check it out. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.